0: Hi there and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm your host Ian Cook and today we're going to be talking about nature in the city. Bengaluru in the past, present and future. The book is written by Harini Nagendra and is published by Oxford University Press in 2016. In the book, Harini traces centuries of interaction between ecology and urban change, revealing not only the destructive tendencies of urbanisation, but also the remarkable ways in which nature survives in one of India's largest cities. From the ecology of slum life and the trend for home gardens, to the conceptions of parks and the use of trees, the book brings together the various different ways in which nature changes and is changed by the city. As such, I think the book offers a truly unique retelling of Bengaluru's story, one that cuts across academic disciplines and makes for an outstandingly innovative and yet richly detailed book. I had the pleasure of speaking with Harini about her book just a few moments before. It's me great pleasure to welcome Harini to New Books in South Asian Studies. Let's dive straight into the heart of the book. It explores nature in the South Indian metropolis Bengaluru, previously called Bangalore, so I suppose one thing that was on my mind before I opened the book, and must be in many other people's mind, is what made you want to look into the ecology of such a place?
1: Uh, hi, Ian, and thank you for inviting me to a New Books Network. Why Bangalore, or uh, Bangalore, as some of us would be more familiar with the word? Well, for me, it was pretty simple. I'm from Bangalore. I'm from the city. This is where I grew up, and uh, this is home, and I found as an academic trying to study the place where you grew up and you, you look at it both as an insider and an outsider. So for me, it's been a, a deeply personal journey that brought me here. But for someone else, why Bangalore? Why would you read a book about Bangalore? I think Bangalore exemplifies a lot of what's going on in the world. We are supposed to be in what the, you know, the 21st century is called the era of the Anthropocene, which is uh, just human impacts on the planet have become huge. It's also called the urban era because it's the era of cities. We're now a planet that is more than 50% urban. And we're sort of foot on the accelerator going towards urbanization at this really fast pace. But we have no idea what this means in terms of the lives and well-being and environmental outcomes of urbanization. And we have no time to stop and think and reflect or to look at how has this actually impacted the world. I think Bangalore is a great example. It's a medieval city created in the 16th century. It's a small market town and has grown so hugely in recent decades. You know, it's now, there's a word Bangalore, right, which is on the global dictionary right now, which means the offshoring of jobs. So Bangalore is famous for its software and IT industries. It's also famous for uh, locally for a lot of other things, you know, its trees, its parks, its lakes its local history, which is so intertwined with that of India, because a number of rulers came and went, the city shaped in so many ways because of the amalgamation of so many cultures that came into the city. And in talking to people around the world, so cities like London, Singapore, Tokyo, Taiwan, it seems like the lessons we learned from Bangalore are really applicable to so many cities in the world cities that have struggled with very rapid development and the environmental and human outcomes of these. And uh, that's one of the reasons I find Bangalore so fascinating, you know, apart from being the local studying the city. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Great. So before we, 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 we get into the book in a bit more depth, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? What's your academic background?
1: Sure. I am so I've done a bit of multiple things. I have an undergraduate degree in microbiology and then a master's in a PhD in ecology. I worked on forests for a really long time. I finished my PhD at the Indian Institute of Science in '97, and then worked for about ten years on forests. And then I lived in different places, came back to Bangalore in 2003, and in 2006 started looking at the city and moving to urban ecology. And uh, so that's, you know, something that I've been working on for the past 10 years, looking at cities and how they shape the ecology and how ecology shapes cities.
0: Wonderful. And that takes us, uh, gives us a nice segue to talk about chapters two and three, because you give the the readers of the book a wonderful ecological history of Bangalore. So to ask you a very broad and open question, how was the growth of the city shaped by nature?
1: Bangalore is an, very interesting city. It's a very old settlement. So if you really look back, I mean, there are uh, megalithic tombs that tell you that the city was populated or the landscape of the city was populated a really long time ago, maybe 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 years ago. We don't really know about who those people were and how they lived. But we can start looking at inscriptions in whether they're in stone or whether they're in copper plate from about 6th century CE onwards. And that tells you a lot about this city and which uh, lets you speculate on other cities across the world. Bangalore, as I said, was an interesting city because it's an old city without access to water. It's in a semi-arid environment. So water is always, uh, you know, getting enough water for people to live is a challenge. There's no large river. We're not near the coast. So what do you do in a place like this? Well, what people did was created the landscape or refashioned the landscape. Wherever there was a small depression, they actually cleared out the brush or the jungle, the semi-arid kind of vegetation that you find here, uh, scooped out the mud, made little troughs and depressions, and called them tanks that we call lakes right now. So they lay, it was originally irrigation tanks that were filled with rainfall. They were seasonal. And networks of these on topographic gradients. So you had a tank on the top of a hill, and when that overflowed, that filled a tank at the you know, midway, and then that went down to a tank at the plains. And so this network of tanks actually gave rise to ephemeral streams, which then fed into larger rivers that are outside the city. So this was a city that completely relied on rainwater and the harvest of rainwater. And yet, you know, it's such an old and long civilization. So what I've tried to do in chapters two and three is uh, trace the history from the 6th century all the way to 1537. And what we know about Bangalore, popular oral histories of popular even histories of the city will tell you that in 1537 there was a medieval chieftain called Kempe Gauda, and he came to this barren land where he saw a vision. He saw a hare chasing a hound and that was a sign of a, a landscape of bravery for him. It was like a symbol of bravery, you know, that a hare would chase a hound. And so he created this market town de novo in this barren landscape, semi-arid landscape. But if you start looking at the inscriptions, you can actually document where villages and when villages were created or flourished at different points of time, and you actually see that there were at least seventy-five villages in the landscape around Bangalore between the sixth century and the sixteenth century. You know, so when Kempegowda came in, it was not barren landscape that he created this market town on, which is you know in hindsight it seems kind of obvious, but uh, this is something that we need to look at more. Why would a ruler come into an area where there was nothing, where there were no villages? And how could you create a city out of nothing? So there was this thriving market network of these these villages that existed. And the inscriptions tell you a lot about the way in which Bangalore's topography, the way in which its ecology constrained the kinds of livelihoods, the kinds of ways in which people could fashion lives in this not very uh, fertile, not very promising landscape, again, because water was scarce. So if you start looking at the topography of the city, you can see that the western part is a rolling hills with a lot of rocky granite outcrops. And this is what uh, locally in India is called the Malnadu or the Malenadu, which means the the land of rains. And uh, it's, it's also the rolling hills where you have more granite. The soil is kind of thin and barren. You have some trees, but they're largely thorny. And it's not very easy to do agriculture in these kinds of areas because this is largely in the rain shadow of the Western Ghats, which is a large hill range on the south coast of India. And uh, therefore, if you look at the inscriptions from this area, they talk about cattle raids. Clearly, pastoralism, livestock was, was one way, was the main uh, mainstay of their uh, living. And what they would do is send cattle into the jungle. And when they went into the jungle, there would be, Cattle raids, you know, so there would be neighboring groups from neighboring villages who would try and raid these. And then there would be fights in which brave warriors died and went to heaven. And then you would have a stone commemorating this. There would also be wild animal attacks. You talk about attacks from tigers, from wild boar, you know, from a range of wild animals. If you look at that landscape, even today in Bangalore, it's still rocky. And it's still the place where you see a lot of wildlife. So you have wildlife coming into the city from a national park that's just outside the Banargata National Park. And that is where our wildlife are found even today. So this has not really changed from the 6th century all the way to now. Now, if you look to the east, you see a completely different kind of landscape. You see a landscape that's called the Maidan or the Bailu in uh, the local language, Kannada. And what that means is grassy plains. It's very different. It's fertile. You can have tanks. You can get a lot of water. The vegetation is not that thick or thorny. There's not that many wild animals there. So people were much more easily able to clear this landscape, have tanks and uh, do irrigated cultivation of paddy downhill from that. And that means you have a very different landscape because when you have paddy, you have surplus. You can have flower gardens. You can have lakes around which you have gods and therefore you have temples and the rice and the flowers and the fruit from these irrigated landscapes actually goes to worship of the god. And you get a lot more market produce. So the kinds of inscriptions you see and the way in which people related to the landscape and what they did with that landscape was very different. Now, what happens in a 21st century modern city? We have become really oblivious of this topographic difference, right? And this is where Bangalore speaks to other cities around the world. London also has a lot of differences from one part of the city to another. You know, So does Taiwan, so does Singapore. But we tend to think of our cities as homogeneous units. So within the city, any part is the same. Maybe you have some variations in real estate price because it's close to a metro station. But the topography, the ecology, the rainfall does not impact the kinds of construction that you do. But of course, thinking that it doesn't impact it is a myth. And as I talk about them, you know, now what we do is when you have the rocky landscapes and you have a builder wanting to build in the western side of the city, a good blast with dynamite and you've broken out all the rock and you can construct a. A large apartment complex. What about the marshy areas to the east of the city? When you have a lake and you have a wetland, you can again fill that in, dump a lot of debris, fill the, fill the place in and construct a large apartment. And you think physically looking at these, that these were the same kinds of structures because they're built on the same kind of flat level ground, except when rainfall happens or doesn't happen. And then you see that places that are in the west run dry and you don't get water. You might try and pump water from deep into the ground, but all your bow wells try and run dry. Places to the east are constantly flooding when there's rain because uh, you know they were meant to be wetlands. They were meant to actually absorb and hold water. They were not meant to hold apartments. And so, in not thinking about the ecology, in forgetting the differences between the west and the east and the terrain of the city, we have lost so much that we really need to reclaim. And that's a lot of what I talk about in the second and third chapters about trying to reconstruct the ecology of Bangalore pre-market town, pre-history, and see how that goes on to impact what events play out in the rest of the city post Kempegada, post the market town. So from the 16th century to now, how how the city has changed. Mm-hmm. And of course, after that, a lot of changes take place in, in Bangalore because uh, a number of rulers, as I said, come in. So there's Kempegada, then there's the Mughal Empire from uh, North India that comes in for a while. There's... Um, Number of other, you know, so the city changes hands, it's sold, it's bought, it's ransomed. Eventually, the British take it over because there's a local iconic king called Tipu Sultan and there's, uh, you know, in a number of four battles with the British, him and his father, he finally dies in 1799. And the British take it over in 1799 and from there it it starts growing hugely. It becomes a big, important cantonment of the British. And uh, then you have a lot of changes since, you know, from then onwards to now.
0: Wonderful, thank you so much for that um i've only spent a short period of my life in in Bangalore, but just when I read your book, I was instantly going back to the map, thinking back of the places I went and I go ha ha, ha, ha trying to trying to fit it all together in my head. but another thing I used to do in Bangalore was look out my window in the on the third floor and look inside everyone 's gardens and this uh-huh. is what's really interesting um that you talk about in the fourth chapter because you talk about Bangalore's sort of yeah, real real trend for having home gardens. So, could you tell us a little bit about these? Why are they important for the city, and how have they changed over the years?
1: Well, Bangalore has always been famous for its bungalows, you know. So, mm-hmm. Bangalore's bang- there's, theres even a book written about the bungalows of Bangalore. And <laughs> these were these old, large British homes with these huge gardens and you know, nice driveway, and. Uh, The British uh, colonial view of nature and these gardens influenced Bangalore's gardens, but also influenced British gardens back. Because when an expatriate retired after spending time here and went back to the UK, they wanted to recreate the Indian tropical garden as a sort of a fantasy garden for themselves. So there was so much of this crosstalk that went back and forth between Indian gardens and uh, home gardens and uh, British home gardens but it's also something that for a local Bangalorean, is it's so deeply culturally part of the city. Because despite the fact that it's such a modern city, it's fairly recent to see high-rise apartments. The old parts of the city are still small, you know, one unit, two unit houses. And you have uh, uh, gardens where people grow, plants, you know, even in slums where you don't have too much place. I talk about how you have people growing plants in tiny pots or maybe discarded paint buckets, whatever you have, you grow plants. And that is one sign of uh, the local residents' very strong affiliation with nature. And that I think shapes, it's very fundamental because it shapes the way in which you see nature and you want to preserve nature in the city. It starts at home, but it actually translates to the entire city. For me, it's the reason I wrote the book. Because uh, when, uh, so the gardens of my mother, my aunts, you know, we had certain flowering species, fruiting species, which to me are so characteristic of a home. And when I started building my house in 2006, looking for plants to plant and going to local nurseries, I found that they don't even stock these plants anymore because uh, they're stocking plants for a different clientele, clientele who works in an information technology sector and a software company maybe and they want palms because the Silicon Valley culture, you know, wants palms and then they want to grow them in Bangalore. You know, so it... it Just the idea that this different aesthetic was taking over the city made me very curious about home gardens. So that's one of the first pieces of research we actually did looking at home gardens. And we found a number of very interesting things. So if you compare home garden studies across the world, uh, Bangalore seems to have an unusually high percentage of cultivation of useful plants, things that you eat, things that you worship with, you know, flowers that you use for worship, medicinal plants, fruits. So the most uh, ubiquitous tree that you find uh, is the coconut, right? And every part of the coconut tree is used because the coconuts give you water, the flesh you use for cooking of the coconut. Uh, the leaves, uh, are, you take out the, the fronds inside and you can weave them to use broomsticks and the rest of the leaf is used to, to for heating. You know, you can use it for fuel. So this each part of the coconut is really used in so many diverse ways. And similarly for other plants, now, because of this, you have a number of other things that happen. You grow plants in your garden and you largely use them yourself or you maybe you trade with your neighbor. So, of course, you're growing organic because your pets play there, your children play there. And therefore, you know, you don't want, uh, you don't want to be used to spraying chemicals, pesticides. And because of that, you also find that there's a huge amount of insect diversity that these gardens pr- uh, promote compared to you know, most of the other parts of the city. So in an ornamental park, for instance, you would spray the heck out of a a plant, right? In a corporate garden, you certainly would because you want everything to look neat and clean. You don't want holes in your leaves. But these home gardeners have such an intimate connect with nature. And that really, for me, was so profound. When you start interviewing them, I mean, my students and us, uh, we would do crazy things like walk into someone's garden with, uh, with a light and a big set of batteries that we want them to leave their windows open at night that we can set a light trap out all night to catch insects and we're selecting houses at random so we're walking into the homes of perfect strangers we very rarely got turned away because people are so interested in and so proud of their gardens that they want you to come in and study them and tell them to, uh, you know what you found
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. wonderful this is this is I, I really I really really uh, enjoyed this chapter but I think my see my my favorite part of the book is this focus on trees I I, I mm-hmm. There's a chapter five and, and, well, a part of chapter five and all of chapter six, you have quite a lot about trees. Um, again, I'm going to ask you a very broad and open question. It's like, what does the presence of trees or even the absence of trees mean for everyday life of people in Bangalore?
1: So the other part of Bangalore as a colonial city is just the large roads that had trees planted on both sides and this very green canopy that you had. And that is interesting because it's it's a culture that, we think of as very colonial, but it's also very linked to the, to the old native parts of the city. So which were, you know, so you had narrow roads, but you still had trees. You had coconut trees. You didn't have the large canopy trees. But the British uh, came in and aggressively started greening the city in the 1850s. So it's very interesting, you know, the the city starts urbanizing rapidly from 1810 or so when the cantonment uh, comes into Bangalore. And uh, then by 1850, you have all these discussions of climate change and urbanization. And they say, well, not global climate change, obviously, but local climate change. And they say, oh, my God, the city is getting so hot. There are so many buildings. You don't need fireplaces. And uh, sepoys couldn't fire their muskets in the mornings. Their hands used to be shaking with the cold. But now it's you, just too hot. We can't live here. And they start planting trees. And of course, the British have access to a palette of trees across the world, right? So they bring in trees from Kenya, from Madagascar, from the Kew Gardens. They get in the head gardener, chief gardener from the Kew Gardens to set up, you know, to decide what plants to plant. And this city is aggressively landscaped with trees. And you can just see this, you know, from map after map from the 18, the, from the 1790s all the way to the 1880s, you can see the transformation, the number of trees that are planted across the city, And these trees do a lot. They cool, they provide shade, of course. Uh, They're very good for recreation. And the British follow an old Indian idea called Ritu Samhara, which means that you must have flowering at every season. And again, because of their global palette, they're able to do this, pull this off very well. So every season in the city, you have trees with flowers and it just, it, it looks spectacular. But trees do much more than that. There are a number of aesthetics. So, for instance, there's a lot of trees that people worship in the city. And uh, I talk about those, for instance. Trees are important to not just for aesthetics, but also for the street vendors. So Bangalore, like any other Indian city, has a lot of street vendors who sit under trees. And uh, if you talk to them, their stories are extremely interesting. So a woman who sells clothes might want to sell under a tree because the tree shades her clothes from getting faded in the sun, right? Or a man who was selling pirated DVDs, and this is one of my favorite stories, when there's a tra- bad traffic, which there is most of the time in Bangalore, mm-hmm. you find uh, people on two-wheelers on bikes that get onto the pavement and drive so that they can get past the traffic jam. And often they bump into street vendors. So we found this man who had his hand in a cast selling pirated DVDs right next to the trunk of a large green tree. And he said, look, if I'm I've already had this, you know, break in my hand because a biker rammed into me. And now I just sell my DVDs next to this large tree trunk because I know they don't want to ram into the tree. So I get protected. Mm -hmm. You know, there's so many stories that you hear of people looking at trees in completely different ways. So the slum residents, some of them very entrepreneurial, have set up little bike repair shops. Because, again, when you're on the streets and you have all these nails and other things, you know, you often get your, your bike tire might get punctured. And so what they do is they use the branches of trees. And I'm sure you've seen this, Ian. Uh, you, you have an inner tire tube hanging on the tree. And that's a signal to anyone from a distance that, okay, here's a little puncture shop. And I can stop and get my bike fixed. Right? So trees are used for so many kinds of things. And, of course, for worship. And uh, you're very right. You asked me about uh, how trees get remembered in their absence as well as their presence. And uh, there was a very interesting article recently in an Indian paper talking about, the, it's really a lament about the loss of the gulmohar, which is a particular tree in uh, which is, ha, used to be very widespread across Bangalore. It has these lovely red flowers and it's called the mayflower or the mohar. And uh, the lament was about the absence and the writer was reflecting at that point that when it was present, it's not something that he thought of that much. But now that it's gone, he realizes that an entire cultural memory of the city is gone and it takes with it a certain sense of well-being, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. Let's now um, talk a little bit about parks. I mean, uh, parks, I think, something that actually people maybe associate with Bangalore quite a bit and uh, and people have different sort of affinities or different memories of parks. And I, I... like I said, I lived only a very short time in Bangalore, but I was there with a young child and a park in Bangalore is the place where my kid walked for the very first time. So I suppose everyone has these different attachments with, uh, right. with parks. Yeah. But, uh, but beyond me, let's talk about your book. What are the, what are the ways in which uh, parks are conceptualized differently by different groups in the city?
1: Parks have a very interesting history in Bangalore. If you're looking at uh, a number of uh, places... So the original park, for instance, was the kind of place which was an Indian pleasure garden, which kings used to use, or what we called a tota, which was really an orchard. So you had uh, traditional gardening communities that would have fruit orchards of coconut of various kinds of fruiting trees, maybe guavas, maybe mangoes, maybe jackfruit. But they'd also have some ornamental plants in there, typically flowers that you used for worship. And they'd also have a few medicinal plants. So it was a, a utilitarian garden. But also a pleasure garden of a certain kind, and then so over time, with the different cultural influences that you get into Bangalore, this starts getting mixed. So um, we have these um, two kings, Hyder uh, Ali and his son Tipu Sultan. The Tipu Sultan is the one who died, and uh, when the British took over Bangalore in 1799, and Hyder uh, Ali and Tipu Sultan built gardens in the Mughal style, and the Mughals. Um, having originally come to India from Afghanistan were per- and from Persia before that, had a particular style of an Islamic garden that they were looking at, which was very neat and regulated. So the Indian garden, they found very messy. They called it slovenly. They called it messy. You know, you had some plants here and some plants there. They were all mixed together. There was no clarity about which space belonged to what. So they created these plants, uh, these garden styles, which were really uh, along ideas that they call the bag or the charbhag—that that is four parts to the garden or two parts to the garden or eight parts, you know, geometric divisions, with water courses learning neatly and regularly. That's a theme that the British built on in a different way. When the British came over, they were also pretty aghast. So If you look at their early descriptions of Indian gardens, they talk about how messy it was, and they want order in this. And they're also looking at the economic value of gardens. So, Pretty early on, uh, directs come in from the Kew Garden to people in Bangalore who are trying to look at guard, uh, uh, reviving the Indian gardens in Bangalore, saying that don't waste any space on n- plants that are not economically useful. Only plant exotics, or, which are useful for cultivation, or Indian plants that we want to cultivate in larger numbers to, to spread to other British colonial territories. So there's this great focus at some point on economic utility of parks. But then this changes later because one of India's, uh, Bangalore's oldest parks, Lalbagh, which is actually created by Haider Ali, was uh, then uh, set up in a particular, um, it was transformed into a pleasure garden. But a pleasure garden of, di- of a different kind. What they start doing is to set up this entire large place where you have uh, uh, an orangutan, a menagerie of you know, a leopard, all kinds of other animals from across the world. And you find that people start coming into the park in very large numbers. It suddenly becomes a different kind of a place, which is also a recreational space for families to come in and use. And this tradition of you know, mixed influences, so you must have some place which is economic, some parts which are utilitarian, some parts which are for recreation. That continues very much into today's Bangalore. Having said that, one of the things I've found with parks is that this is changing over time. So if you look at the newest parks, there's a whole set of smaller parks that were established in the 1990s. They tend to be much more landscaped. You have a lot of shrubbery, a lot of pruning, and, uh, you know, they're very water intensive. And these definitely don't have uh, places for, uh, you know, fruiting trees or medicinal plants or people to pluck and to use these gardens. Which the old wooden gardens would have. And uh, one of the things I find there is that really reduces your attachment as a community to this park. If you can only use it for recreation, that's nice, but you could also go to a gym for recreation or a mall for recreation. But if you also get your medicinal plants from there, your fruits from there, you know, variety, maybe you worship in that park, you have much more of a strong affinity to this place, which means it's much more likely to survive despite all the urban pressures of real estate, of, uh, you know, varieties of other kinds of not having enough water to water the gardens. So people's ways of communities getting together and protecting a park really depends on the kinds of vegetation that you have. And this shift in landscaping, you know, whether it's from home gardens to apartments where you, uh, which is the same story that you see more ornamentals and more aesthetic uses of plants and more recreational uses, and the same trajectory that you see in parks, it really limits the way in which people want to protect these. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Wonderful, thank, thank you so much for that. You mentioned uh, before, and when we were talking about trees, about the way trees are also worshipped, but this isn't the only way of, that the sacred intersects with nature in a city mm-hmm. like Bangalore. Could you could you talk us through a little bit the ways this happens?
1: Of course, uh, I really think that sacred traditions of worship because they're so widespread across all the religions you encounter in India, and you encounter a lot of religions in, in India, right? Uh, because they're so widespread, this tradition of nature worship and nature protection, that that really offers one of the most uh, positive ways that we can think of nature surviving in Indian cities. So if you look at uh, temples, at mosques, at churches, at cemeteries of various kinds, you'll see large trees being protected. The kinds of species vary, you know, so the kinds of species you'd find in churches, the kinds of species that you find in mosques, the kind of species that you find in temples are different. But there are large trees that people protect. There are also roosting sites. People protect, you know, roosting sites for bats. Uh, People protect roost areas where monkeys are. There's a number of species that are really protected. Beehives. And there's a number of other just daily things that people do. So, Uh, So many people in the morning, the first rice of the day, when you cook rice, you leave it out with ghee on a plate in your garden for the crows to eat or for whatever birds that come in and eat. Leaving uh, milk and sugar near anthills for the ants to eat is again a very common form of worship. And the whole idea is that nature has a right to live and you gain merit by allowing nature to live. Some of this is really old. If you look at one of the old inscriptions that I saw on a lake in Bangalore and sometime, somewhere around the 7th century, it talks about this lady who constructed a lake in a local landscape. And for so many of the inscriptions talk about lakes you know, for merit for their own families. But this woman constructed the lake so that all the birds, all the animals and all the cows and all the life around this lake could flourish. So she just, you know, that, and she put in, she created an entire lake in that village for the service of biodiversity. And this culture you really see very integral to this. So some of the most beautiful trees that you find in Bangalore are in the cemeteries. And you know, you're not going to have land use in a cemetery, it's a land use change in a cemetery, right? So these are pretty well, huge protected trees which have amazing roosting sites on these. And uh, such a pleasure to see. Mm-hmm.
0: Wonderful, thanks. One of the, I mean, the book has lots of really very interesting, fascinating maps, rather, that show the way that the city's changed over the time. Over time, And one of the most shocking for me was the series of maps which shows the decline in lakes and wells went from, I think, 1885 right through to mm-hmm. 2014. Now, Bangalore was once called the, the city of lakes, and when you see these maps and how it's changed, you start to think, you know, can Bangalore still be called the city of lakes?
1: Right. So the, the story of lakes and this is, is a very interesting opposite to the story of trees. And as I said, the number of trees in Bangalore increased steadily from the 1790s all the way to now. The city has cut down a lot of trees, of course, in recent times. But overall, we've increased in we've had a steady increase in trees. In lakes and wells, which is what the city depended on for its water, you see a huge increase from the 1790s up to 1880s, you know, to 1890. And then in 1890, what happens is that there's too many people in the city and uh, not enough place to add new lakes or wells and get enough water. So the city decides to import water from a nearby river. They have a little dam and they start getting in piped water. And this is a clear example of uh, or illustration of how, when the local loop gets destroyed, you know, now you don't need to protect your local water bodies, right? Because you're getting piped water from outside. The entire narrative around lakes changes, entire narrative around wells changes. What is sacred for all Indians? And so all these lakes typically had a, a temple near it with a lake goddess and they were worshipped and they were kept very clean. There was a sanctity around them. Now they become places that you dump garbage, you even dump corpses in times of plague. You know, people start dumping corpses in wells and lakes. You definitely dump garbage. Uh, they become um, talked about as uh, sources of malaria and cesspools of sewage. And this really becomes a challenge because what then they start doing at the city level is to clear a lot of lakes and then construct, construct malls, construct bus stands, construct uh, housing complexes. So we lost a lot of lakes in the city at that time. Now what's happening is the periphery of the city still contains, that is the new areas that have grown, still have their lakes. And uh, the amount of water you can get in from the Kaveri River, which is what uh, feeds the central part of Bangalore, what is the central part of Bangalore, is not enough to take care of the peripheral areas. So the peripheral areas are dependent on groundwater, and groundwater is running out. And now people are beginning to realize, because of this local loop, that you need to protect lakes, because if you don't protect lakes, You're not going to have water because the price of groundwater, I mean, when you people pump out water and sell them to you in tankers and the prices have increased by three times in the past four, five years. And this really, I've I've seen such a change in the way in which people think about water and want to get together. So you find a number of lake groups that have come across the periphery of Bangalore to actually save these lakes, the ones that exist in the periphery. So I do think there's hope for the future not for the central part of the, of the city, because there's so much construction on these lakes that you can't do anything about them, but definitely for the periphery. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Could you talk about the, the future? Because you, you mentioned in the very beginning, you know, when the urban age, we're also in the age of the Anthropocene, and uh, you, you addressed this question in the, in the final chapter of the book. You, and I suppose, the yeah again, to ask you a very open question, what are, what are the possible futures for urban nature, in, both in Bangalore, but in, in cities more generally?
1: What I find very interesting is, so of course there's a story of uh, gloom and doom, you know, the dismal story of how much we've lost. But if you look at cities across the world, there's also so much that we've retained. Maybe it's because I'm an optimist by nature, so I tend to think of cities. You know, we have to be optimists, right? If we're going to live in these cities, what are we going to do? I mean, we, we need to live with some hope and we need to do something. We can't say that there's no hope left. But what I found truly inspiring when I was looking at this last chapter and trying to think of stories of hope that I could collect was a number of stories that I came across of people and communities that have actually worked to restore their lakes. And I really feel from my experience that urban restoration happens not because of governments, but uh, in spite of governments or because of people putting pressure on governments to act, city governments to act. Because in it Whichever city you go to in the world, it doesn't seem like nature is in their list of priorities. Roads, uh, telecom networks, you know, maybe energy, all of these other things are. But nature doesn't seem to be on the priority of any municipal government. So that comes only because of people's pressure on elected representatives, on their bureaucrats. And the stories that I find of people in Bangalore. So there's an activist group that moved the courts to say that lakes have to be protected, surveyed, fenced and restored. There are community groups that have saved lakes and now act as nodes of information for a number of other groups. There's uh, my friend's grandmother, who is now 92 and ha- is a mother of 10 children. And after her husband passed away, she fought to t- save a local park from being protect- uh, from being taken away by a real estate construction company. For Because she said, my children played in the park and all the neighbor's children should have a chance to play. And she took this case all the way to the Supreme Court of India. To, to save this park, so the number of very inspiring stories that I've heard from people across Bangalore really give me a lot of hope, and these could be people in slums who you know have very little but protect what they have and green their places in ways that are simply amazing, street vendors who protect trees that they, they are right next to, or elite apartments that actually protect nature and go on to form these very upscale uh, restoration initiatives you know so hope comes in in all forms. <laughs>
0: Wonderful. Uh, thank you so much for this discussion uh, about your book. I really, really enjoyed reading it. It's, uh, it really is a book that talks to many different disciplines, and uh, I think it speaks to people not just interested in cities, they're not just interested in in ecological aspects or not just interested in, in south asia but really anyone who wants to think it makes you rethink the cities that you live in you know like and you start to look at a city in a very different way i started to pay attention to the trees on the street where i live in budapest after you know after reading your book so i really strongly recommend this book to everyone listening at home but uh, the question that we usually end our interviews with is now that this book is out what are your current and future projects
1: uh, the future projects that I have are trying to build on this mm-hmm. one of the things I've really enjoyed since writing this book is hearing from people I mean, like you, you are talking about the book and what you think, is talking about people to, in Bangalore for instance and they say that they've looked at the streets that they grew up in or the neighbourhoods that they grew up in a very different way now after reading the book and they realise why they like certain trees or why they go to certain places to play or you know why certain things form part of their cultural imagination of the city And I've been interested, because of this, in looking at what do you get in terms of a sense of place of a city. Now, why is nature conservation so challenging in cities? Because we're always in flux, right? New people keep coming into the city. And how long does it take for a person who's come into the city to feel that they're part of the city and then want to get together to do something about preservation in the city? When does the sense of place come in? So, for instance, a common lament across, in cities across the world is that migrants have come in and therefore the city has gone to the dogs. But these migrants come from places where they have a strong sense of place, where they have cultural attachments, where they work together for preservation. So what happens to this change, you know, and uh, when do you again become part of the city? How do you develop new rules for the commons or new norms about preservation in a city? That's something I'm now getting very interested in. And I think this is going to be my new project for the future, looking at how we can forge new urban commons and new urban collectives around uh, cooperation and conservation in cities, which are composed of all kinds of disparate sets of people.
0: Wonderful. That that sounds absolutely fascinating. We look forward to reading the results of that um, sometime (laughs) in the future. Um, There's nothing more for me to do apart from to thank you again for coming on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure speaking to you today.
1: Thank you. It was a real pleasure to talk to you. Likewise.
0: Thanks so much for listening to the New Books in South Asian Studies podcast. I've been your host, Ian Cook, and today we've been talking about Nature in the City, Bengaluru in the Past, Present and Future by Harini Nagendra. I really love the book and I really enjoyed speaking to Harini. I really hope you check out the book for yourselves and I also hope you listen again next time. ta